railroaded the targeting and caging of Ross Ulbricht. Hello and welcome to the Railroaded Podcast. This is part one of an eight-part series and is about the targeting and caging of Ross Ulbricht. My name is Gary Leland from CryptoPodcaster.com. You may know me from my other podcasts, such as the Crypto Cousins Podcast and the 4-Minute Crypto Show. Railroaded is a podcast series revealing behind-the-scenes information you've never heard before. This is a peek into the inner workings and conflicts in the Silk Road story, and you'll meet the people involved. Now first, let me say that I had nothing to do with the production of Railroad itself. I am just distributing this show as a podcast to help it reach a larger audience. Now I hope that the more people that know about Ross's situation, the better his chances are of being freed. Now the information in this podcast is based on the public record and should not be attributed to myself, Ross Elbrook, Lynn Elbrook, or anyone connected with freeross.org. I am not responsible for and do not verify for accuracy any of the information contained in this series. Railroad was created by the Free Ross team and is narrated by Adrian Basson. Now in today's show, you will hear Chapter 1, Traveling the Silk Road. Chapter 2, Passing the Torch. Chapter 3, Targeting Carpellus. And Chapter 4, Fighting for Control. Okay, I guess that's enough from me. Let's listen to Railroaded. Railroaded, the targeting and caging of Ross Ulbricht. Narrated by Adrian Bassan. The following is based on public information sources, including court filings, transcripts, trial exhibits, affidavits, warrant applications, subpoenas, judicial rulings, investigation reports, press releases, sworn testimony, and direct evidence. Some gaps remain due to government protective orders, redactions, sealed records, missing records the court cannot account for, dropped investigations, tampered evidence, communications and other data that remain encrypted, and the fact many of the parties involved have not testified. Even so, every effort has been made to accurately present the available evidence surrounding the creation, investigation, and shutdown of Silk Road, and the prosecution of Ross Ulbricht. Chapter 1 Traveling the Silk Road Alex Winter, director of the Deep Web documentary, said, Ross Ulbricht found himself at the intersection of three of the most highly prosecuted areas of law in the United States today, cyber, the drug war, and financial regulation, meaning the Silk Road angered a lot of people in power. The Silk Road Anonymous Market was an e-commerce website, similar to Amazon or eBay, but with an emphasis on user security and anonymity. It was launched in early February 2011 by Ross Ulbricht and employed two key pieces of technology. One was Tor, a global network of computers that routes internet traffic in a way that is nearly impossible to trace. Tor allowed users to connect to Silk Road without revealing their identity or location and without their internet providers knowing about it. The other was the cryptocurrency Bitcoin which allowed Silk Road users to anonymously pay or be paid for the goods and services listed on the site. Ross, at the time 26 years old, envisioned Silk Road as a free market economic experiment, an open platform 
driven by its user community. He believed that people should have the right to buy and sell whatever they wanted, so long as they weren't hurting anyone else. The guiding philosophy of the site was that it is no one else's business who you are or what you're buying and selling, as long as the transaction is voluntary and no third party is harmed. Some things were therefore prohibited, including stolen items, child pornography, counterfeits, and generally anything used to harm or defraud others. But users were not told specifically what to list for sale. Many legal items were sold, such as gold, books, art, and clothing. However, more and more vendors realized that the site's anonymity made it a safe platform for selling illegal drugs, the most common transactions being for personal use amounts of cannabis. A few months after its launch, Gawker.com published an article about Silk Road, exposing it to a more general audience. Then, in early June 2011, New York Senator Chuck Schumer, a member of the Senate Finance and Banking Committees, called for a crackdown on Bitcoin, the immediate closure of Silk Road, and the apprehension of those behind it. It became known as Schumer's case. Chapter 2 Passing the Torch Nick Gillespie, editor-in-chief for Reason, said, Pay attention if you care about due process, Fourth Amendment protections against illegal searches, the limits of government surveillance, and Internet freedom. With no programming experience or training, Ross's limited skills were soon inadequate to handle the complexities of Silk Road's technology, so he turned to a college friend, Richard Bates. Bates had studied computer science and was working for PayPal and eBay, companies that specialized in online payments and e-commerce, expertise suited for Silk Road. Initially, Ross asked Bates specific questions without revealing the nature of the project. But when Bates insisted, Ross told him about Silk Road. Bates offered him some help, but distanced himself, citing concerns over the site being targeted by law enforcement. As time went on, Ross became more stressed and overwhelmed by the Silk Road project and turned to an online anonymous stranger he met through the site. I had discovered a big vulnerability in the way he had configured the main Bitcoin wallet that was being used to process all the deposits and withdrawals on the site, the stranger stated in a later interview. At first he ignored me, but I persisted and gained his trust by helping him secure the wallet. From there, we became close friends working on Silk Road together. That stranger provided the needed help and eventually took control of the site entirely. It was a transition that took some time, he said. I was in his corner from early on, and eventually it made sense for me to take the reins. On November 11, 2011, Ross informed Bates of this transition. As he told him in an online chat, Glad that's not my problem anymore. Then, on February 6, 2012, the new owner of Silk Road announced his screen name as Dread Pirate Roberts, DPR, a character from the film The Princess Bride, who passed his name and identity on to his successors. By doing so, he became the focal point of the government's investigation into Silk Road. Chapter 3. Targeting Carpellis Scott Greenfield, criminal defense attorney, said, this case is the birth of law as applied to our digital future. Watch it as a spectator at your peril. The investigation began when Homeland Security Investigations, HSI agent 
Jared Deryagin, began to intercept unusual packages at Chicago O'Hare Airport in June 2011. The packages were unusual, not only because they contained drugs, but because they used sophisticated packaging methods to avoid detection, yet contained only personal use amounts. Der Jägen has never revealed how he first learned about Silk Road, nor how he linked these seizures to it, but eventually made approximately 50 or more purchases from the site and tested the purity of the drugs he received. Having discovered Silk Road, Der Jägen began digging further. He read all he could find online, and discovered that it first became known through an online user by the name of Silk Road on BitcoinTalk.org. The user signed his messages, Silk Road Staff, and referenced a website called SilkRoadMarket.org. This website was not Silk Road itself, which was accessible only through Tor, but rather an ordinary website with information about how to use Tor and access Silk Road. When he looked to see who the website was registered with, Der Jägen found the name and address of his first lead. However, the information was fake and did not show up in any public or law enforcement databases. Determined, Der Jägen kept digging and found that the domain name server that the silkroadmarket.org URL was registered with was called xta.net. He then found, through a subpoena, that XTA.net was registered to Mutum Sigillum, a company owned and operated by Mark Carpellis. A Frenchman living in Japan, Carpellis was the owner of Mt. Gox, which, as the only major Bitcoin exchange market at the time, handled the vast majority of Bitcoin exchange transactions. As Bitcoin was the only payment method on Silk Road, this piqued Duryagin's interest. Carpellas owned, operated, and administered hundreds of websites and was a self-proclaimed computer hacker. He was also an experienced computer programmer, specializing in Bitcoin and development of e-commerce websites, making him well-suited to operating a site such as the Silk Road. Duryagin unearthed everything he could about Carpellas and his associates. He learned that Carpellas had acquired Mt. Gox around the time that Silk Road was started. Carpellus had a strong motive to create a large underground marketplace where bitcoins would be in high demand. The Silk Road was uniquely suited to his purpose. Because there are few legitimate vendors who accept bitcoins as payment, it is widely believed that the rise of bitcoin has been driven in large part by their use on Silk Road. Der Jägen also managed to turn a confidential informant against Carpellus, someone who had worked for him within the past two years. This informant revealed that Carpellus owned and operated BitcoinTalk.org, the same discussion forum where Silk Road was first publicized. From visiting the forum, Der Jägen knew that it operated on a software platform known as Simple Machines, and that this same software platform was used to operate the discussion forums included on the Silk Road. He noted that Simple Machine forum software was not widely used by forum administrators. Thus, the fact that the software was used to operate both the discussion forum on BitcoinTalk.org and on Silk Road indicates that the forums were likely set up by the same administrator, that is, Carpellis. As Der Jägen connected the dots, he found another indication of what looked like Carpellis's involvement. One of Carpellis's websites, TuxTelecom.com, 
included a tutorial constructed using MediaWiki and a specific version of this software, version 1.17. He also found that SilkRoadMarket.org and SilkRoad also contained pages constructed using the same version of the same software used to create the wiki page on TuxTelecom.com. He reviewed the MediaWiki website and found that the MediaWiki software was regularly updated and many versions have been released over time. Thus, the fact that the exact same version of the software was used to create the wiki page on Tux Telecom, SilkRoadMarket.org, and SilkRoad indicates again that the same administrator, Carpellis, was responsible for creating all three of these sites. In fact, Carpellis had moved both SilkRoadMarket.org and TuxTelecom.com repeatedly and simultaneously to different IP addresses. This showed that Carpellis controlled the websites and that he hosted them both at IP addresses he controlled. By April 2012, Duryagan had identified multiple accounts belonging to the Silk Road operators that contained bitcoins worth millions of U.S. dollars and linked them back to Carpellis and one of his associates, Ashley Barr. He had found strong ties between those controlling the Bitcoin markets and those operating the Silk Road. A Canadian with a computer science degree, Barr was Carpellis's right-hand man. He wrote like DPR and shared the same viewpoints. For Duryagan, it clicked. Carpellis was the mastermind behind keeping Silk Road secure and operating and Barr was the spokesman and voice of DPR. We're going right for the admin and his money, he wrote in an April 20th email. On July 6, 2012, Duryagan summarized his findings and submitted them in a report that could be seen by every HSI office in the country and their coordinating office known as C3. Chapter 4. Fighting for Control Jeffrey Tucker, editorial director for the American Institute for Economic Research, said, Ross's case is so important to our country's future and the future of liberty itself. When somebody has been singled out the way Ross has been, to be made an example of for a purely political case, that's a serious problem. Only a few days after Duryagan submitted his report, Michael McFarland, lead Silk Road investigator at HSI Baltimore, submitted a draft proposal to HSI headquarters. In it, he told all offices that he was the point of contact for all domestic Silk Road-related investigations. Seeing that McFarland had developed virtually no information on Silk Road, Duryagan rewrote the draft to state that he was. McFarland then went directly to C3 and pitched his case as the only Silk Road investigation HSI has and wanted their support. Looking into it, C3 found that Duryagan had a much longer and diverse investigation on the Silk Road, and called Duryagan to a meeting to brief them on it. At the meeting, Duryagan told them that he had tracked down the Silk Road administrator, Mark Carpellis. Unbeknownst to Duryagan, McFarland intended to co-opt his investigation into Carpellis, and had informed C3 of his plans to travel to a foreign country to interview him. In early August, Duryagan wrote McFarland outlining the large list of information leading him to Carpellis and Barr as the ones behind Silk Road and DPR. 
Because Der Jägen knew that pursuing Carpellus and Barr without tipping them off would be extremely difficult, he told McFarland not to share the information with the rest of his task force. He didn't want anybody reaching out to Carpellus because he was worried that if someone did something, that Carpellus might find out. He warned McFarland that Carpellus closely monitors all of his websites, which appeared to be fronts that he is actively tracking. And, if someone went on and wasn't sufficiently disguised, then Carpellus might recognize it as law enforcement, and it would tip him or someone he works with off to the investigation. A few weeks later, C3 called both offices to a meeting to settle the turf war between them. After each side presented its case, Deborah Note, one of the managers overseeing the meeting, noted the confusion and odd approach to the HSI Baltimore investigation. She asked Der Jägen if McFarland's investigation was interfering with his case. He expressed deep concern for McFarland's tactics and the lack of focus in his investigation. By the end of September 2012, a new agency, Baltimore's Drug Enforcement Agency, DEA, had also gotten involved. Der Jägen pulled up their records and found that they mirrored exactly his. Upset, he asked McFarland if he had shared his investigation with the DEA and the rest of the Baltimore task force. McFarland said he had, having disregarded Der Jägen's request not to. Der Jägen expressed serious concern but was brushed off. The following day, Stephen Snyder, HSI Baltimore's Certified Undercover, CUC, Program Manager, told Der Jägen that McFarland was once again trying to monopolize the Silk Road investigation, this time by registering it in Baltimore's CUC program. Snyder refused to allow this because it was clear to him that McFarland was copying Der Jägen's case, and there could only be one CUC program over the Target website. Yet, within a few weeks, Snyder reversed his decision and approved McFarland's as the sole investigation. Even though McFarland had been dropped by C3 from the CUC program the previous month. At this point, McFarland began demanding all Der Jägen's information on Carpellus, saying they were trying to work him. Der Jägen refused, telling McFarland to not work Carpellus independent of HSI Chicago. By October, Der Jägen discovered that McFarland had shared all of HSI Chicago's information on Carpellus with members of his task force including an IRS agent, DEA agent, and SS agent. Further, McFarland had issued multiple subpoenas and had actively worked Carpellus to include a type of surveillance, all without Der Jägen's knowledge. For a written version of this episode, plus citations and footnotes, go to freeross.org railroaded. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Now, if you'd like to help Ross, please consider signing and sharing Ross's clemency petition at freeross.org petition. Over 171,000 people have signed it so far. Hey, that's up 1,000 people since last week's show. Now, for additional information, visit freeross.org. You can also follow Ross on Twitter at RealRossU, and that's just the letter U. Everyone, please subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening so you don't miss an episode. I'd love it if you could give this podcast a five-star rating and a great review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. That really helps this show way more than you know. And please share this show with your friends on social media. And let's get the word out there. 
Now, this episode is sponsored by BitBlockBoom, the Bitcoin conference. Take a look at this great conference coming to Dallas, Texas at BitBlockBoom.com. I hope I get to meet you in Dallas. Now, until the next episode, this is Gary Leland from CryptoPodcaster.com saying thanks for taking the time to listen. Thank you.